When I started the uh, message this morning, I spent a little bit of time talking about the common error that is made today, that there is some difference between the message of eternal life that Jesus taught and the message of eternal life that Paul taught. People uh, tend to forget that there is a gospel message that was given from Jesus, which involved the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. This is important to recognize the difference in his ministry. It changed two more times after that, of course, to where he was going to prophesy that he was going to go and die. And this was so misunderstood by the disciples that Peter was willing to stand in the way of Jesus and say, no, I'm not going to let them kill you. And what was Jesus' response to Peter? Thanks, I appreciate it. You know, No, no, that's not what he said. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. To show the severe lack of disconnect between what Jesus was there to do in the mind of the disciples and what he was there to do in reality. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jerusalem was turned upside down. There's a major conspiracy theory going around that the disciples stole away the body. This is prevalent to today. Many Orthodox Jews that have converted to Christianity, um, I've talked to three in my life that have said that was the leading theory and they never touched the New Testament, which is pretty interesting. Uh, Jewish people are, are really highly educated, especially ones that go into uh, their faith in an orthodox way. But they never touch the New Testament. So there's really no opportunity for them to see the, two, the, the, the three Jewish people that I've talked to that have come to faith in Christ. Two of them were one to Christ when they understood Isaiah 53 in light of the New Testament. It was like the puzzles, the puzzle pieces clicked together. They, they could do nothing else but say, is this not Jesus? It wasn't even a question, and they came to faith in Christ. But when you don't even take a look at what the New Testament says, you are making the choice, I'm going to stay in my unbelief. And as a result of that, you'll be continually hardened by your sin and the fact that you're not seeking, you're not looking, so you're not going to find these answers. Now, I think Romans chapter 1 is um, literal when it says, there will be no one that can stand with excuse. There's no one who's going to be at the great white throne judgment, the final judgment of all time, who's going to look at God and say, you didn't tell me. How could I believe on someone I didn't know? Now, for our minds, I've heard a lot of teachers say, well, that's, you know, what about, and they create a person that really doesn't exist. They create somebody somewhere, and in their minds, they're already creating a scenario to where you would have to answer in their favor. And I've asked teenagers before that say the question, what about somebody who's on an island who never hears? And I said, well, maybe God's preparing you to go reach them. Maybe, you're the, maybe you have the call of a missionary to go out and share the gospel with people. And you know, I like that there's ministries like Ethnos 360 who spend years and years and years going into an unreached people group. And I mean, they are unreached. They have a language that they understand, but it's not written down. It, it, it couldn't be uh, explained or taught. These missionaries go in there and they spend 10 years getting the language into some type of uh, alphabet, then they can teach grammar, then they can begin to establish the written language of the people, then they go in and they teach from creation to the cross, and people get saved. I think that's great work to get behind, and we support missionaries who are a part of that group. I think of the Burns, Cody and Becca Burns. How many of you are familiar with Cody and Becca? Papua New Guinea is, there, is where they're at, and she's had a rough pregnancy, and then her son... Uh, has had some health issues, and now uh, her husband has some health issues as well. She does 
currently, so they're not able to go back to the field. But I think of people like that where they were not satisfied with, well, someone will reach them. They said, how about, why, why not me? Why not me be the one who goes on behalf of the Lord? But as we're going through and we see now Paul's legitimate um, information from the Lord Jesus that you're going to be rejected by Jerusalem and I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, Paul is recounting all these things. He's rolling it out as it was supposed to be. He first goes to the public. Remember, he goes in, he uh, uh, visits the temple. He's going to make alms there. He's going to help a brother with a, with a sacrifice. <clears throat> and as a result of that, there's a huge uproar that happens. And all of a sudden now he's been taken outside of the temple. The temple doors have been shut. Everything is shut down. They're ready to kill this man. There's a chief captain who is of the Roman side of power that comes up and says, what's going on? And he thinks Paul's some other guy, an Egyptian, who had led a rebellion of 4,000. Paul's like, no, I'm, I'm the Jew from Tarsus. Let me speak to the people. We know the guard that pulled Paul aside could not speak Hebrew because he asked Paul if he could speak Greek. And then Paul addressed the audience in their Hebrew tongue, and he went through his conversion story and how that he was going to be rejected with hostility in Jerusalem, and that's exactly what happened. Well, as you can figure, the people were even more upset. Paul was brought into the castle under Roman... Um, <clears throat> he's uh, captive by the Romans now, and they were going to beat him thoroughly. And then he pleaded, he said, are you going to do this to a Roman citizen who is uncondemned? This is interesting because now, and I, we explain this power shift that, exist, that existed in Jerusalem, <clears throat> there was a religious power where there could be religious you know, punishment and all those kind of things. But if there's to be any kind of actual political power against somebody, well, you had to have Rome on your side. It's exactly what happened with Jesus. And we studied that this morning when Jesus had a religious trial and then afterwards they had to convince Pontius Pilate who partnered with Herod. They actually had a friendship over this now. And then, of course, he was sentenced by Pilate, and Pilate's response was, I don't find any fault in this man. And then, of course, the last part that had to be done was to, again, convince the people to allow a convicted criminal, Barabbas, go and for Jesus to go to the cross. And that's exactly what happened. Now the resurrection has passed. Paul is continuing now to teach, and he has been delivered... In verse 23, he now speaks before the Sanhedrin. So you go from speaking to the public. Think of this like what you and I would think when people are looking at political candidates. I think that's the best description. You want to hear what they have to say. They're given time. It's not a debate, not like that. But when people are rallying and they're going out and they're speaking to the people. I mean, at least in our government system, the people are supposed to elect a government and the government is supposed to be responsible to the people. Boy, has that flipped in you know the past... 20, 30 years. But now what Paul is doing, he's not campaigning, but he's going to the masses first. Now he's going to go to the religious elites, Jewish people still. That'll change by the end of what we look at tonight. But this group he's, he's speaking with is a Sanhedrin. Lots of different types of religious scholars in here, but there's three main ones that I want you to focus on. There's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and then the scribes. And the scribes are pretty much with the Pharisees. These three are very uh, predominant in Jewish culture. The Pharisees were, they were there to take care of all the religious things, the rites, the ceremonies. They're the ones that had the eye of the people, so to speak. They were uh, responsible for two things. Number one, the written law. Okay, that's the first five, book of the Bi five books of the Bible. The written law that's communicated, <clears throat> they took care of that. But then there's this other thing 
that's not inspired from God, but I would venture to say, and I think a lot of commentators would agree with me, this second thing has a lot more sway than the actual written law. Does anybody know what it is? It's the oral law. These are like the commentaries on the written law. You can go and look at today. It's called the Talmud. You can go in and look at it today and, and see. There's a lot of things you go, does the Bible really say that? There's some weird things in there, but this is exactly what Jesus was addressing to these Pharisees. You have changed the standard of righteousness. You have set it to make yourself the ones who are in control. And even today, there are things in the Talmud in, in Israel. There's a difference of opinions with rabbis. You go over there <clears throat> to Israel next week, let's say. You walk around. You'll see posters and these posters of these different rabbis. And they all pretty much look the same because they have a strict dress code that they follow. But in the sign, it's not in Hebrew, it's not in English, it's in Yiddish because they have their own private language. These rabbis kind of candidate for themselves. Well, Rabbi so-and-so, he's better because blah, blah, blah. And they'll put some Talmud verses there. And then they say, well, Rabbi, this person is better because of this and opposed to Rabbi this. And it's like this warring class of people. And these young men, they'll grow up, they will become these uh, Hasidic Jews, and they're, they're funded by the state. The state of Israel funds them to, to be able to live and do what they please. And they'll follow these rabbis as rulers. Well, a lot of what we see today would have been what we saw in this moment here in the Sanhedrin. These are religious elites. People were following them, hoping that by following them, these teachers would be able to give them the standard for righteousness. So that's the Pharisees and scribes. Scribes, of course, the ones that would write things down meticulously. <clears throat> then you have the Sadducees. And I know I, I'm about to tell you a joke, okay? And it's not to necessarily be funny, but it's, almost, it's a memory aid. The Sadducees denied any kind of afterlife thing. You're going to see that when we get into the, uh, the scripture here. They denied the resurrection, angels, spiritual things. So the Christian would say, that's why they're sad, you see? Okay, and I know that's like, goodness, dad joke, we're maxing out on the dad jokes. Well, I can do that now, you know, and that's fun. But in all seriousness, you can differentiate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were more political. They wanted to kind of be like the conservatives. They weren't real you know, liberal in their interpretation of things. A <clears throat> little more rigid, but not more rigid than the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the end-all, be-all. They were the examples. But when Paul makes a statement in verse 6, which we'll see in a second, he appeals to something that be, it literally tears the group apart. I think Paul did it on purpose. I think that Paul had a little bit of bitterness towards these group of people. You're going to see by the response he says to him, let's, let's take a look at it. Verse, 20, verse 1 in chapter 23 of Acts, page uh, 1181 in a Schofield Bible. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by to smite him on the mouth. Okay, if anybody smites you on the mouth, it's not a pat on the back. They literally reared back with the back of their hand and smacked him in the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, now this is where I say Paul had some things. I don't know if, what, if, if this is right, what he did. But he did say something pretty uh, direct. These would be fighting words, so to speak. He receives that smack on the mouth, which is not right. Why is that not right? Because the Jewish system should have been as it was set up by God, 
innocent until proven guilty. This man has not been charged by Rome, nor has he been charged by the Sanhedrin, and yet they beat him around. So he makes a response to that. Look what he says. God shall smite thee. Now he says, thou whited wall. You ever heard someone else use this term before? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said the same thing. And he said a little more. John the Baptist said there, a generation of vipers. These are not things you're going to put down on your resume, you know. I worked at so-and-so. I won the generation of viper award. I was called the great whited wall. People referred to me as a whited sepulcher. Those things are not good. Besides the viper comment, a whited wall or a, or a, a whited sepulcher gives the illustration of, of something that looks good on the outside, but the actual ability, the strength of that thing is not good. It is good in appearance only. This is like a very pretty load-bearing wall that has not the proper uh, requirements to bear the load in which it's under. It'll look good, but you're not going to want to put your family in there. whole thing could fall down and you could lose your family. He says, For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? Now, some commentators will say, well, Paul didn't know that that was Ananias that commanded him, otherwise he wouldn't have said that. Paul does change his tune here in verse 4. He, uh, he's, he's, there's another response to him that says, And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren. So I, I still don't think that the truth of what Paul said is now you know, nullified because he made that mistake in who he said it to. But he does respect the Jewish people's positions. And don't forget, he's a Jew. He understands all of this. He's going to reveal some things that we're going to look at in Philippians in a second. But his, his statement is, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. See, Paul's getting them on both sides. First of all, you're going to see later on in this address, he wasn't doing anything wrong in going to the temple. Trouble came and found him. He was not the trouble. Second of all, regardless of whether the high priest or someone else commanded Paul to be struck, doesn't really matter. It was not their right to do that. He had to be condemned first. And he's there to give his appeal. But they struck him. Is that the first time that that's happened? No, it's not. We're going to look in a little bit in Acts chapter 5. That's some other things that I think are, are worth looking at. But he says, you should, I, I also should not speak uh, evil of the ruler of thy people. Verse 6, but when Paul perceived, this means that he, he saw and understood something, and he's going to use that understanding to his advantage. That one part were Sadducees. What do we know about these guys? They denied what? Spiritual things, and specifically, they would have denied what about Jesus Christ? The resurrection. The Pharisees, remember, they were Pharisees that believed, but they kept their mouth closed for fear of judgment. They could, they could believe the resurrection. They're looking for the prophecies. They just missed that it was Jesus. But at Paul, now he sees here, and, and he says, ooh, there's a... There's something I can gain advantage of here. He cried out in the council. So now he's, he's gone from a soft tone to a very direct tone. Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. And look at this statement. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. Look at the response this gives. 
And when he had said so, there arose a dissension, disagreement, strong disagreement between what two groups? Why would it be these two groups? Group one, the Pharisees, because, hey, he's one of us. One of us. Okay. And the Sadducees say, heresy. He's speaking of things that are not true in the resurrection. And the multitude was divided. Now here's your proof text for sad you see, that little memory aid. For the Sadducees, verse 8, say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Now, pause for a second here, and I want you to look in Acts chapter 5 and verse 34. Could you do me a favor and uh, fill this water for me? And then also, if you could bring me my cell phone, because my tablet's going to die. I think I will be okay, but still. <clears throat> Thank you. Acts chapter 5 and verse 34. Some very interesting things that we're going to see here. Now, for context and for time, it's already 627, my goodness, time does fly. The apostles have been brought before the council again now, and they are, they are there because they have brought, been brought in once before and told expressly, do not speak about Jesus. That makes people angry. Don't do it. And they very famously said, we would rather obey God than man. This is why when, when Trent told me what happened during Friday Night Soul Winning and that there was a threat from the leadership of that mall to trespass people for just talking to another person willfully. You know, the picture they want to paint is Trent had somebody up on the wall by their neck sharing the gospel and just oh, violating their rights. These are two consenting individuals having a discussion, but you can't do that because that's offensive. I'm telling you, folks, it's the apostles had gone through this very same thing, and they set an example for us. I don't think that means we go and look for the trouble, but you share the gospel. Amen. And if the consequences come, then the consequences come. You be prepared and rely on God for strength to face whatever the government may say. You don't have to be afraid of those things. Are they going to take things away from you? Yeah. Is it going to be difficult? Yeah. But we serve God who's given us eternal life. Amen. Now that's, for some people, that's hard. But when, you, when you're walking with the Lord and you're close with him, you understand, what could my government do to me that would nullify what God has given me? Amen? That's something beyond this world. And, and you go study what happens to the believers in the tribulation period. They lose their heads they, they cry out for vengeance on their blood. And what does God say to them? There are many more who have yet to die. We're living in a very, very interesting time in history. I don't think we should, you know, for fear of offending people or, or getting in trouble, well, I'm not going to say anything. Well, you'll have to answer for that because there's an example that's set for us. But these now are brought before. It's the second time, and now... The council's ready to beat the apostles. They're done with it. They'd reached the top. Gamaliel says his piece. This is what he says in verses 34 through 39. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had a reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space, meaning give them an opportunity to breathe. Hang on a sec. Ring it back and let me speak to you. He said unto them, ye men of Israel, take heed. What does it mean to take heed? Yield. Be careful. 
to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. Now he's going to go, and, and as a good teacher, he's going to give us some examples. 36. For before these days rose up Theodos, boasting himself to be somebody. <laughs> I always laugh when I read that. He thought he was somebody, you know. To whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves who was slain. So Theodos, the somebody, turned into a nobody. And what happened with his following? Who was slain and all, as many as obeyed him, those 400, were scattered and brought to naught. What does it mean that they were brought to naught? That they died? Know that they no longer campaigned for this man. They no longer had association with him. If there was persecution, which I don't know if there was, they're not dying for Theodos. He's a somebody who was a nobody. He said he was somebody of power. Turned out not to have the power. Look at the next example. After this rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of taxing and drew away much people after him, he also perished. He, went, he, he expired. And all, even as, as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. What's the theme here? Great leader, great following, death, no following. What's Gamaliel saying? These men are following Jesus, who was perceived to be somebody who died, and yet nothing has died down. Something's different here. Look what he says. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. I wonder what Gamaliel thought of Jesus. I just wonder. Are we going to get to heaven? It's going to be like, there he is, big G. There he is. I don't know. But he gives some great wisdom here. Give it time. Let it breathe. We have Theodos. We've got Judas of Galilee. This Jesus of Nazareth. He could be the same thing. Let's see. He warns them very clearly, though, what would happen if they are fighting not against men, but against God? But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it. <laughs> I like that. And surely they can't. We're still, it's the year 2023, and we're still talking about Jesus Christ. You tell me, was he a work of man or a work of God? Amen? Lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. And I think this is, you know, on a darkly comedic sense, look at what is said here. And to him they agreed. What did he just say? Give the apostles some space. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, you think they gave them space? Yeah, probably the space between however much it took to rear the hand back to make connection with the face. That was about it. So they heard Gamaliel and decided, we're going to beat him anyway. Knowing full well that there is a risk they run, that they were going to be working against God. If this does not show you the desperation and pridefulness of man's heart, I don't know what else to point you to. I really don't. And notice, these people were doing this of their own volition, clearly given the opportunity to choose. And they chose to disobey. <clears throat> they commanded them after they beat them, they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They departed from the presence of the council. Now we have the apostles' point of view. Rejoicing. I like that. They had just been beaten 
by their government. Yet they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Reminds me of what we're studying on Wednesday night, 2 Timothy. If we suffer for him, we shall also reign with him. And at the judgment seat of Christ, where we're going to be rewarded with gold, silver, and precious stones for, for works in our life that are profitable. I think of some of you who have gone through persecution in your family. Some of you have not even talked to your family for years because you take a stand for Jesus Christ. If you're doing that in the, in the spirit of meekness, you'll be rewarded for it. Just let God take care of it, folks. You keep preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? He'll take care. Vengeance is mine, saith the local church. No, saith the Lord. I'm so glad that he's taking care of that. I'm just called to be found faithful. 42, and daily in the temple and in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus. How, how do you think they took that instruction? Well, it tells you right there. All right, now go back to Acts chapter 23. So we're, we're, I wanted you to see that this is not the first time that there was some type of disagreement, but it looks like this time, instead of somebody giving some advice, now they're just, they're just full out dissenting with one another. Verse 9, Acts 23. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, we find no evil in this man. Interesting. So the opinion now has changed on Paul. I wonder if this is, remember, this just says it was a part, the scribes' part of the Pharisees. I wonder if these were the ones who were believing or they just saw by their own law that they wanted to keep this. We can't do anything against this guy. We're trying to do, we're trying to convict him of breaking the law of which we're supposed to uphold and we're breaking it ourselves. I mean, they're at least men of good conscience that knew right from wrong. But that didn't stop. We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Why would that have been a problem? Because the Sadducees would have denied it. They, would, they don't believe in any of that. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them. This is literally, I mean, think of the riots that we have seen in the last, you know, five years in our country. Have you, I, I don't know if you've seen it. I've seen a few of them. Have you seen where they just literally get out of control like that? It's like one thing will be said and usually someone will actually um, like throw an object or push somebody and then all of a sudden it's like immediately you see people there. What I notice first is the hands and the neck coming back. It's like a very specific motion and then it's hands on people. And you see the weaker people falling to the ground and there's a lot of scuffling and then there's the tear gas that's shot out and you go, if you're in the middle of that, and you are unaware of what's going on, you'll be trampled into pieces. I mean, I don't think body parts are going to come off, but you'll die. We've seen at some of these horrible, secular, pagan uh, music artist concerts, people just pushing up a little bit at a time, and people die, which I think is so interesting. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think a lot of this type of stuff is, is, is weird sacrificial behavior. But you find out, you can see what's going on in this scene right now. The, there's enough men, that there's enough contention, that it's going to get violent real quick. Our chief captain, the Roman guy, he comes back in, going back into the scriptures, seeing that uh, Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him by force from among them, and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, 
the Lord stood by him. Now, this is, this is very important for Paul because, you know, Paul's been doing ministry for probably about 20 years up to this point. He's gone out and he's getting ready to write letters and all this stuff. He's gone to Corinth, all these different places. He's done a lot of what we've read in the New Testament already. And the Lord encourages him and says, be of good cheer, Paul. I know this is not directly written to us, but I would think the same for you and me in our, in our culture today. Be of good cheer. This is why personally, I have to check myself when I have a bad attitude and I'm walking around. I have to really ask myself, I just said this to my uncle before we went, uh, he went back to Awana. At the time, I was listening to the game and, you know, that we were losing and I, I think that's how things ended up. But he was like, well, you know, oh, well, sorry to hear that. And I said, I didn't even catch myself saying it. I said, well, at least I've still got eternal life. And I kind of laughed to myself and then was like, wow, it's just a, you know, football game. Why would you have that kind of encouragement? But seriously, you find yourself in a bad spot in this world. Don't forget of this is not your final place. You're going somewhere else. That's going to encourage you beyond what you know. When you put things into perspective, it's, it's greatly encouraging to realize who is going to, who condemns me before God? Who can charge me and actually have that charge stick in God's court of law? Nobody! The blood of Jesus speaks for me. That'll change your persecutions. That'll change your circumstances. And that is what is told to Paul here. Be of good cheer, Paul, by Jesus himself. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. So the journey continues. Look in Acts chapter 24. We're skipping over a portion of Scripture for time. But in Acts chapter 24 and verse 1 is where we're going to look at. What we skipped over was there was a plot of about 40 guys, to have that chief captain leave Paul alone in an area, and then they were going to kill him. If that doesn't tell you, again, the depth of Israel's unbelief, I don't know what else to show you. But they were willing and set on making sure Paul did not make it to Rome to where he claimed. <clears throat> that would have been a win for them. Now, we've got a lot to read here, so let's take a look. We'll have some commentary here and there. Verse 24, and after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. Now, if you have a Schofield Bible, this is why I like study Bibles. It kind of tells you here, there's a breakout. This is the accusation that is against Paul by this man, Tertullus. And when he was called forth, began to accuse him, saying, seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness and that... Very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Now, because of what we skipped in chapter 23, we missed who this man Felix is. He's the governor. Tertullus here is going to, he is, this is the prosecution lawyer who comes against, he's framing now Felix's opinion. He's like, look, every, things have been quiet. We're behaving. We're beneficial under your rule, most high and noble Felix. It's just, it's oozing off. You know, you can tell. Oof. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear of us the clemency, uh, thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man, a pestilent fellow. Boy, uh, is there any bias revealed here? 
and a mover of sedition, not a good thing, among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Interesting. What did the scribes think of Paul? We find no evil in this man. What does Tertullus say? Everybody's bothered by him. He's framing it. Who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself makest. Take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. So there's the charge. He's a problem. He's a pestilence. He's of a violent gang out of Nazarene. Uh, excuse me, out of Nazareth. And guess what? Even further, he disrupted the peace in the temple. Now, isn't it nice that in Roman law, this man can now speak for himself? That's the charge. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were true. So not only was it just Tertullus here that was saying some things, there was a posse and crowd with him, saying, I, this is true. But Paul gets to speak for himself here. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Why would Paul be more joyful to answer before Felix, the governor, than Tertullus would have been in his joy? Because Paul's in the truth. Paul is not coming in to persuade them to think something that's not true. Look at what he says. Because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. That was all the way back in 21, chapter 21. They neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, what would that way have been? The way of Jesus, the way of eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Change your mind, Israel, and be baptized. That's the first message that's given to Israel from Peter. He says, this Jesus, you, you killed him. He was the Messiah. Repent, change your mind. But this I can, oh, we read 14, excuse me. Uh, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And this is all true. We can go to Daniel chapter 12 and see there are two resurrections that happen. It's 645. We do have time. I want you to look at it. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. Paul, this is not in the uh, verse schedule that I gave you, but it's worth looking at. Daniel chapter 12, page 919. And at that time, we'll start in verse 1. We're going to get to verse 3 there. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never uh, was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thou, thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be 
found written in the book. Now, the heading here is there's the resurrections. Now, we we could have gone to Revelation 19 and shown you this, but that's New Testament. Have your eyes for a second. At this time, when when Paul is standing giving his defense before Felix, they had this scripture. This had been around since 530-something B.C. They, they should have known this. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, I contend that is those who have faith in the Messiah, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those are the unjust. Now, take a look at verse Go back to Acts chapter 24. Knowing Daniel chapter 2 and verse 2, read now Acts 24, 15. And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. It's also like he could have said there, cross-reference Daniel 12, 2, in their own book, which he said he believed all things. 16, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been uh, here before thee and object if they had aught against me. Meaning the real ones who brought the crime against me, if it was a real thing, they'd be here instead of Tertullus, being a puppet for the Sanhedrin. Verse 20, Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, that was the chief captain who was not named in 21 that delivered Paul, I will know the utmost of your matter. And now he's going to go and speak before um, Festus. We're going to skip that one because there's not much there. He appeals to Caesar and he's going to go to now uh, Acts chapter 26. Join me there, please. He's going to speak before Agrippa. I like to read commentaries. I don't read them for a more perfect understanding of the word, but I like to see what people say, especially historical quotes. There are many people who say this next 20-something verses in in Scripture, as far as from the perspective of a secular text, is one of the greatest defenses of a man's testimony ever written. Paul is detailed, and Luke is very detailed in his transcription of what's going on. What we skipped is that he makes an appeal. He talks to one group of people. Again, there's an attempt on his life. He comes into 26, and he's now given audience to speak. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things wherefore I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee, He's talking, now he's he's appealing to Agrippa, to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. I want you to note here, 
the expert approach in Paul to gain favorable attention. King Agrippa is probably a wicked man. We, we can safely assume that. Not a good man. Not an upright man. But Paul finds something to compliment him that is not false. He says, you know, in an expert way, you know these things that I'm going to share with you. I just want you to take this in your soul-winning approach. Find a way to gain favorable attention. Don't use the Bible as a, a battering ram on people. Find, do you love these people? Do you care about the person you're talking to? Or are you just trying to fulfill an obligation to get the gospel out? There, I did it. To what effect? We need to love in a way that can be understood by the people that are seeing us. Now, if they want to come against you and rail against you, let it be said of them. Let them be the guilty ones and you be innocent. But Paul gives a really good example here. He compliments the man he's trying to win to the Lord. My manner of life from my youth, verse 4, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem. Know all the Jews. They know who I am in the way that I lived, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. We don't have time for this, but please write down Philippians 3, 1 through 11. <clears throat> Philippians 3, 1 through 11. And now, verse 6, I stand and am judged for the people of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. He's beginning to show them they don't understand the things that I understand, and I have studied the law as the tightest of them have. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead. Why is that important for King Agrippa? Well, if he's familiar with the Jews' way, he'll know of the resurrections in the Old Testament. Why would it be such a giant leap that someone is raised from the dead? Who would that have been applied to in Paul's time? Jesus. Paul's trying to win this man to Christ. Yes, he's standing for his innocence, but he is trying to win this man to Christ. That's why it's hard for me to stop. It's hard for me to stop reading. What is the end result? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. Many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, now that's where I want you to mark there, because we didn't see this in another part of Paul's testimony, but his work against the saints led to their death. I want you to see how God can use anybody if God can use someone like Paul, he can use you. The question is, are you willing? This man was willing. And I punished them oft in every synagogue, compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities, exiled them. Whereupon I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when they were fallen, they, excuse me, and when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard 
for the, to kick against the pricks. And that's the imagery of an ox that is kicking against the plow. There are pricks in the back that would, would, uh, would poke him each time that he did it. And if he would continue to do that, it would get infected, and that's not a good thing. That's what Paul was doing. He's working against his own thing. He's working against uh, God's own people. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Now we have the most complete record of detail here with verses 16 through 18 of what exactly was said to Paul by Jesus. I like how all of you look down into the scripture. That's just, it's a Bible teacher. That's fun. But rise and stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. Now if you're a good Bible student, you're going to see What's the purpose? To eternal life? Against Paul's will, he's been chosen? No. To make thee a minister and a witness, both, both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. You mark that and you draw that as a cross-reference to Galatians chapter 1, starting around verse 11. Jesus did not get his, or excuse me, uh, Paul did not get his teaching from men. The Lord appeared to him and taught him all things. Now 17. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. Now here's 18. To what purpose? To open their eyes. Now this is not their physical eyes. Their eyes are open. They're not blind. This is their spiritual darkness. And to turn them from darkness to light. In the, in, the, in the vein of these are spiritual things, figurative to explain, it's not that they're turning away from good or bad works to good works. This is a demonstration of what I believe the word, the word repent says. They're turning from unbelief by having their eyes opened, receiving the truth of the gospel and believing, from the power of Satan unto God. We know the power of Satan in 2 Corinthians 4.4. What is the power of Satan? He blinds the minds of them that believe not. So here's the Gentiles. They're walking through life spiritually blind. Here comes Paul. They hear the gospel and they believe. They're given sight. They're now out of the power of Satan. In uh, that power of darkness or in the power of light. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. These are the twofold that you see here. You have the, ju the judicial pardoning of the believer by putting their faith in Christ, and also inheritance among them which are sanctified. They're set apart. You're set apart immediately when you put your trust in Christ. But now you have progressive sanctification as you walk in this new thing called your new nature. You, you can now please God. And what's the inheritance? Eternal life. That's the inheritance. That's what was communicated to Paul in Acts chapter 9. And we had to wait till 26 to hear it all. But now we know. This is a great case for progressive revelation. Well, it doesn't say in Acts 9, so Luke is wrong. No, it wasn't revealed until this time. Why is this the most significant part? This is as far as Paul would get. He's talking to the most Gentile of Gentiles, you know, the Roman oppressors, as the Jews would say. And he gives them the gospel. 
Doesn't stop there. 19. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn towards God. Again, we have not changed from the spiritual illustration here. This repentance and turning toward God is talking about their unbelief to belief. And do works meet for repentance? What's that? That's their sanctification. You continue in good works. Set yourself apart because you are set apart. We're not of this world anymore. For these causes, the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me, having therefore obtained help of God. And did he receive that help? Amen, he did. God was there for him. I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those things which the prophets and Moses did say should come. If we were to go to a deeper series, we could study each address that Paul gave and saw how it lined up exactly with what he um, had understood from the Old Testament before he was converted. That Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. I wonder if he took a breath here. Because here we have in 24, and as he thus spoke for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. The peanut gallery gets involved. Gee, thanks. What does Paul say? But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. And he draws his attention back to King Agrippa, who's listening to all this. He understands to some degree what Paul is saying, but he definitely understands the message about Christ should suffer and that he would rise from the dead. For the king knoweth of these things, 26, before whom also I speak freely, for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. Also just a great, great proof text that God did not choose Agrippa to unbelief. Agrippa had a choice here. It was not hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, there's, here's the question. And I like this because you can see it's the same question that Jesus asked Martha. Believest thou this? Is what he said to Martha. And what she say? Yea, I believe. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, some of the most heart-wrenching statements in Scripture. If it stayed to this end, if it stayed to this end, what does he say? Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Did Paul stop? And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am except these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up and the governor and Bernus and they that sat with him. And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves saying, this man doth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, this man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. The greatest thing that Agrippa thought here was, it's a shame this man could have been freed if he didn't appeal to Caesar. But really the greatest thing was is that Agrippa, as far as we know from this text, did not believe. Nor did the ones who heard Paul. Is that a failure of Paul? Is that a failure of Jesus? Is that a failure of God? No, it is again the greatest outward demonstration of man's pride, man's lust for tradition. You can close your Bibles. It's exciting. 
You know, now, now you know, those of you who have been under my teaching for a while when I say it's hard to stop the book of Acts, it's hard to stop the book of Acts. I mean, we're a couple minutes over. I wanted to make sure we got through it because I wouldn't have been able to just pick up three verses. We would have had to go through the whole New Testament. I want you to have a desire for God's word in that way. This, these are real people, real things. These are not little flannel graphs that you saw in Sunday school. These are not things that you learned at a summer camp somewhere to keep you from misbehaving. This, these are the oracles of God. These are the things that we look at and say, if I, I have common suffering with my Savior when I stand for him. But notice what I wanted to make sure we saw in this two-part series. Paul's no dummy. He didn't sit there and go, oh, they're going to kill me. And just pout and, you know, throw a fit. He used it to bring praise, honor, and glory to the Lord. You do the same. You go and do likewise in that way. And did Paul draw on his experience as a Pharisee? That sometimes he did. But what was his main source of encouragement? Jesus Christ. Same for you. If you're here today and you have no assurance that you're going to heaven when you die, you'd, you'd say, I hope I'm going to heaven. Well, you can know. This hand represents you and me. This block of sin represents sin. I put this on top of my hand because all of us have sinned and we fall short of God's glory. What's God's glory? It's perfection. We have to be absolutely sinless to get to heaven. Some people think, oh, it's sinning less. No, it's no sin at all. You have to be perfect and we all fall short. God loves us. He hates this sin. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from him in hell. God made a way for this sin to be paid, but it's not by any of man's good works. Coming to church tonight not, is not going to save you. Give, giving all of your estate is not going to save you. Being a good person is not going to save you. Someone has to die for this sin. This hand represents the Son of God, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And what Jesus did is he went to the cross of Calvary, he took this sin and laid it upon himself, and he cried out on the cross, it is finished. To the purpose of bringing you from darkness to light, to open up your spiritual eyes so that you would have a change of mind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation is not in anything that you can do. It's in everything that Jesus already did. And salvation is already ready for you. All you have to do is believe on Jesus Christ, the son of God who shed his blood on the cross at Calvary, was buried and rose again. He did that for your sins. The moment that you believe that, you're passed from death into life. You'll never be brought into condemnation again. You have a home in heaven. The Holy Spirit resides in you. You've been bought with the blood of Christ. You've been born again. You have a new nature. Oh, man. The greatest of all those things is you have eternal security. Now when God sees you, he sees the righteousness of his son. Amen? Amen. If you've yet to believe on Jesus Christ, do so today. Do not delay. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you're watching on the internet tonight and you say, Pastor, that makes sense. I came into the live stream and I said, I don't know if I'm going to heaven, but now I know I've put my trust in Jesus Christ. Would you pray for me? I certainly would. Would you just click that button there that says, yes, I'll trust Christ. Write us a comment on Facebook or any other site that we're streaming on. If you're here in the audience today, you say, Pastor, I just trusted Christ. Would you pray for me? I certainly will. Would you raise your hand and let me know? Raising your hand doesn't save you. It just lets me know, and I'd like to pray for you. Knowing almost all of you tonight, I know that we are all a part of the body of Jesus Christ. Please do not be discouraged. Please also do not sit in ignorance. Learn the word. Be skilled in it. And be ready to share it. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for this word tonight. Bring us back here safely for our midweek message. But Lord, we pray we're going home tonight. And if it's not tonight, Lord, then I pray we are given the strength needed to do your will. In the mighty, precious, powerful name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.